In the 1400s, there was a koi princess who would walk from her cave with her cattle from Elephant's Eye. And so Elephant's Eye actually overlooks the flay. And she would come in, her cattle would graze at the flay, and she would bathe in the flay. This is the ancient story of Southern Africa's first inhabitants and how a wetland in Cape Town, Princess Flay, got its name. And so in the 1400s, the story goes that she encountered these Portuguese sailors and they accosted her. So there was either rape or murder or some form of assault. And then from that encounter, these legends and stories were were then built into that story to carry that story and carry that history. And so one of the stories is the spirit of this court princess claims the lives of men who come onto the water body. So if they are going on with a boat or swimming, they would actually drown. And it was happening quite often. Then there was also the story of... um, So she cried and cried and cried after being assaulted and her tears filled filled up the little princess flay. So there's actually two flays. There's the greater princess flay water body and the little princess flay. She created the little princess flay with her tears. And so there's these strong cultural stories attached to the site that people still remember today and still believe in today. Like some people won't go into the water body, especially men, because they know that this, this legend exists. And the name Princess Flay, well, the Flay is named after this koi princess. And this is Denisha Arnand, a modern-day protector of that same wetland. This podcast is brought to you by Jojo a proud supporter of South Africa's water activists and a proud supplier of water solutions for a better quality of life. By protecting our most precious resource, Jojo's quality products help to safeguard the well-being of people, communities and the environment. Please enjoy today's episode, a celebration of all things water and the people working tirelessly to protect it. You're listening to For Water For Life, the podcast that tells extraordinary stories of ordinary people and water. They've made it their mission to preserve, purify and protect the water supply where we live in a water-scarce and unequal country called South Africa. I'm Kukule Tumshlungu. And I'm Michelle Constant. In this episode, we're looking at the fight to save Princess Flay from development and we're finding out why it matters, which is how we met Denisha. She's a biocultural worker who is the Biodiversity Project Manager at a civic-led organization called the Princess Flay Forum, which means she oversees the management and restoration of this ancient wetland body that can be found on the Cape Flats. On the southern tip of the continent, the Cape Flats stretches from just outside the Cape Town city centre and its man-made water canals. It's home to a dense urban population that was historically dispossessed by the country's apartheid policy. But the Flats is also home to a conservation area that is a gateway to a massive wetland system. The system purifies Cape Town's water before it runs into the sea. A tranquil body of water hemmed by water grass and a stretch of bush and small trees, this is a very special place in the middle of the urban jungle. It's a home for indigenous species, 
a hub of biodiversity and a place of memory and cultural heritage associated with the Khoi, some of Cape Town's earliest people. Okay, so wetlands are freshwater ecosystems and they are seasonal or permanent water bodies. In Cape Town, we, or in South Africa, we often refer to wetlands as flays, which is a local term for them. That's why Princess Flay, where I work, has, has that word attached to it. Princess Flay was a seasonal water body, which means that in summer it would dry up. Maybe there'd be some water left, but not as much as there would be in winter, and that's, that's normal. So there would be flooding and drainage, which is a driver. And so most of our wetlands would have been this way. And now, because our wetlands don't necessarily drain, because we have put up canals and weirs and we've stopped the flow of water from one flay to another and from one river to another, we have these lake-type wetland systems, which is more permanent bodies where the water becomes stagnant. And in winter, when the, you know, the water levels increase because of rain, there will be an overflow and then they'll move through the canals. We've still got these wetland systems, yes, but they have changed quite a bit from what they used to be. And so that's what wetlands are. A wetland like this serves a bigger purpose in the water story. They are these hubs for life in urban spaces. There's indigenous vegetation, um, is often you know, rich in diversity in wetland systems. Um, you've got all sorts of, of animals, you've got aquatic, semi-aquatic, you've got reptiles, mammals, bird life is you know, the diversity when it comes to bird life and its association with wetland systems is amazing. And so wetlands are these important systems within the, the larger um, system or water cycle within the city or within the country, within the world, because these wetland systems are filtration systems. And so as water moves through the city and they pass through a wetland, it actually gets cleaned. The Cape is famous for its range of majestic mountains and especially Table Mountain that towers above the city, trapping the water that flows down it. So it would come from the top of the mountain, it would come right down you know, the waterfall or the ravine and move down into the river and then flow through these wetlands. But as it moves through from the mountain, it will go through the city and it will pick up pollutants, you know, it will pick up all sorts of yucky stuff. And as it moves through, it, it will reach a wetland. And the vegetation in these wetlands, in these water bodies, actually clean the water. So you've got plants like typha and cypress or cypressaceae, and as the water moves through these plants and through this amazing filtration system created by the, the aquatic and semi-aquatic life, it cleans it. So there's this large organism, of, of multi-species organism, that exists within these wetland bodies that actually cleans the water. Wetlands are, are living systems, so they're fundamental when it comes to taking care of our fresh water and our water systems. And so the water would move through there and then end up in estuaries being very, very important as well because, you know, that's our nurseries. That's where, you know, animals go to lay eggs. It's a safe space for birds. It's a safe space for fish. And so it, it cleans our water, the wetland cleans it, and it goes into this estuary space, not always estuary space, but let's say it goes there and then into the ocean. So fundamental and so important to conserve because that's the responsibility that wetlands have within the water cycle or the, the water system, the hydrological system. But like everything in South Africa, Princess Flay was impacted by apartheid laws like the Group Areas Act 
that enforced separate development for black and white people. So in 1950, when the group areas was passed and the city was divided, there were water bodies, there were green spaces, green spaces being recreational spaces, biodiversity spaces, like, you know, reserves and open parks. There were a certain amount of those that were associated with coloured and black communities. When people of colour were assigned to different areas in the city, they weren't given the best biodiversity spaces or wetland systems. Nobody's going to go to a mismanaged, polluted river to go and have a picnic. And so eventually, by mismanaging these spaces and making them unsafe because you're not putting in the resources to provide security and to maintain the space, these biodiversity spaces became hubs for criminal activity, right? And so bushes became symbols of crime. You know, indigenous plants like that grow into these shrubs are not safe spaces, so you'd want them cut down because people can hide in there and rob you. So the symbols of biodiversity became very much associated with criminal activity. And doing this false disconnect is part of what the Princess Flay Forum is tackling in their restoration work. We also need safe spaces for people to, to connect with nature and to connect with their families. And that's a part of yeah, the work that we do and, and the work that should be a part of conservation in a post-apartheid city because access to these spaces is so important for healing. Cultivating a sense of belonging in people of color or people who are previously disadvantaged in green spaces and in wetland spaces is so important. That's you know the justice work associated with, with restoration. And so working in a former group areas in the Cape Flats, I'm working in one of those recreational spaces that was assigned to colored people. It didn't get the resources it needed. It didn't get the maintenance or management that it deserved. Even though it had endangered vegetation, it has Cape Flats dune strandveld, it has remnants of critically endangered Cape Flats sand fainbos, and other species. I mean, it's also a breeding site for um, the endangered western lepitode. We still don't get the resources that we deserve as a site. It was in the early 2000s that the biggest threat to Princess Flay so far was revealed. It was actually going to be sold to private developers and they were going to build a mall at Princess Flay. And so the organization that I work with, which is the Princess Flay Forum, actually they are a civic movement that was founded from the protest action against the mall development. So when the community found out about this development, they actually fought back. They were doing these surveys, look at how much biodiversity is on site. They were looking at the cultural heritage and the, the spiritual um, heritage and associations at the site. And they developed this case that they took to the city and they took to the developers. And they said, well, you can't build a mall here because this is important to us. And so they won, the community won, and I think it was a big win for biodiversity and for people. The Princess Flay community finally won their tireless struggle in 2014 when the city scrapped its development plans. By the next year, a drought was looming and Cape Town would need to save all the water it could. This just then, Cape Town looking at a water crisis coming up. A lot of times when you turn on the radio and maybe, for instance, Randwater comes and says, we are implementing a water conservation program or a water demand management program, they expect us as consumers 
to do these things to make sure that we maximize the amount of water that we have available. Playing our part in conservation as communities and organizations can be effective, but is it enough to restore the balance of our ecosystems? I think in terms of how do we better rehabilitate this, I think there must be definitely a bit more stronger coordination, I think, between government departments, landowners, as private companies is needed ideally to protect and I think to restore the natural landscape that actually gives us the water and I think this desperately needs to be taken up further by a coordinating agency. I know we have our water user associations, our farmers associations, the fire protection associations and certain NGOs that are already managing the natural resources rather in these landscapes and have also stepped up into restore the wetlands and also clear what's also been an issue of late is the issue of alien invasives as well as also we maybe not might not have touched on upon this but certainly in the bowel catchment is the issue of mining and particularly coal mining. I think money from the expanded public works you know can certainly be used to create jobs I think in active restorations and clearing of some of these invasive species but I think the private sector also has a huge role to play in this you know from a corporate social investment perspective. For many years, Yazid van Veik and Yunus Ubomba Jazwa have been committed to finding high-level solutions to the country's water challenges, like the threat to the flay. But in the urban environment, it's also important that we look at the urban water conservation that we can do, because that is what people in the cities need to know. And it goes back to the simple things, for instance, like, you know, don't run your tap when you're brushing your teeth, you know, take shorter showers, do not let the water run whilst you're washing your hands. If there are leaks happening, please make sure that you report the leak. You know, there are lots of leaks that happen in our informal settlement areas where they do have piping. So that should be also classified as urban water conservation. Even though the indigenous knowledge systems are really important for us in the urban areas, I think urban water conservation techniques and practices are really, really key right now. You know, even things like when you're watering your lawn, what time are you watering your lawn? Are you watering it at 2 p.m.? You know, when it's super hot, are you watering it in the evening? Are you using portable water to water it? That's water from your taps rather than maybe like, you know, water that, that you used to shower or something like that. So I just wanted to highlight that as well. We'll be hearing a lot more from Eunice and Yazid in another episode of For Water for Life. But speaking of gardens makes me wonder if we could potentially mimic the filtering effect of wetlands in our urban homes and communities. And so we asked Denisha. Yeah, so, you know, there are so many ways to take the flay or take wetlands into your backyard by growing things that actually grow in these wetland systems. When you want to create a garden, which is something we do at schools, um, we create Fainbos Gardens, one in Lavender Hill, which has now become this biodiversity stepping stone. So biodiversity stepping stones are these small patches of indigenous vegetation that allow small mammals, birds, insects to stop because the city is so divided and so concrete. They need resting places and they need habitat in between reserves. So creating gardens creates stepping stones for these animals. So that's what you can do. So you can extend the wetland to your home, into your home, because you have a consistent supply of water, or I'm assuming if there is a consistent supply of water and you're able to do it, 
then you can you can plant the same things that we planted the flay and that is an extension of the flay. That's what our intention is with gardening. Obviously you can make it your own, it could be a healing garden as well. Gardens, I mean, are just healing spaces. Green spaces are just healing spaces, but it could be a healing space. You know, you could plant medicinal plants. Wetlands have so many medicinal plants as well, which is also why they're such healing spaces. And, you know, lots of traditional healers go and harvest their medicines from spaces with fresh water close by, so fountains and wetlands, you know, hubs for, for indigenous plants, indigenous medicinal plants. And... That's what you could you could turn a garden into, and it yes, it will work for yourself, but it will also work for for other species. So flays are also communal spaces for learning, worship, and being with nature. They teach us more than water restoration. They offer ways of restoring our balance as a society. Baptisms still happen at Princess Flay. There's full water immersion happening on site. People have the faith and they go in and they've been doing these baptisms because they believe in the sacredness of the site. And I read somewhere that people were referring to Princess Clay as the River Jordan of Cape Town, which I think is quite cool. And also the Koi Revival movement and the clans associated with Princess Flay, because Princess Flay falls within some of their territories, they still come and do rituals on site. It's a sacred space within this urban jungle. You know, you have people coming to Princess Flay to harvest these sour figs and they make confet with it, or they dry it out and they just eat it as a snack and then there's some guys who sell it uh, alongside the road. So wherever you have these dune systems, you would have sour figs. I know in a lot of color communities, that is a food that people grew up with. So it's a, another historical food plant. And you can also use the leaves as medicine. I know some people drink it, some people apply it to blisters and sores or burns. It's good for your skin. Confate, by the way, is jam. So it's a green fig jam. And Vater Blomikis are the edible flowers of an indigenous water plant used in a stew. So yes, it has conservation value because it's allowing us to restore this vegetation type, but it also has cultural value. And people can, you know, they have a relationship with the plant. Outside of conservation, you just need to look into deeper histories of these plants, which is why looking into a site from a biocultural perspective is so important. Denisha's biocultural perspective is a holistic way of practicing nature conservation that also brings together people in the city. And a way of valuing bodies of water as life-giving within our communities, an approach that is worth adopting. Speaking of bodies of water, Somewhere in an ocean on planet Earth, we can find Lewis Pugh advocating for a sustainable future. I've been swimming for 35 years in some of the most remote parts of our world. Over that time, I've seen huge changes to our environment as a direct result of climate change, pollution and overconsumption. Lewis loves oceans. This is extremely dangerous. When you get into that water, be under no illusion you're on the edge of life and death. When I'm swimming, it's pure survival. What happens next is another extraordinary story for another episode. I'm Michelle Constant. And I'm Gugule Tumshlungu. Thank you for listening. All of our podcasts are available at jojo.co.za and the series was made possible because of Jojo, For Water, For Life. Find us on social media at For Water, For Life and share your water stories using the hashtag Listen to the Water because if you do... It can change your life.
the Jojo family to yours. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Four Water for Life. Whether you're looking for top quality storage tanks, water filters or other water solutions, Jojo has the product ideal for you. Discover our range at jojo.co.za and find us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram for all the latest product news and water-related content. Music